Thank you, Emma. If you would open your copy of God's Word to James chapter 1. The title of the message is, The Wisdom to Endure Trials. And the bulk of our time this morning will be in uh, James 1, verses 5 to 8. And I hope next week to finish up this opening uh, section on trials as we go all the way to through verse 12 uh, next week. Well, it's my privilege to, uh, to be with you this morning. I, I kind of like Brian taking vacation to give me a chance to uh, preach without interrupting his normal flow, but uh, he is taking most of the month of July off, and uh, he has done that exactly two times since uh, he's been here, to my knowledge, and uh, he did it last year, and it was really relaxing, and uh, so he's doing it again this year as well. So uh, I do believe he'll be with us at some point in the month, but uh, today he is, I think, down at Grace Community Church. So uh, let me just get into the book here. The book of James is a, a very practical and timeless letter that reads like a cross between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of Proverbs when I read it. It contains short but powerful teachings on a variety of very practical topics. Trials and temptations, poverty and riches, favoritism, speech and worldliness, and prayer. He touches on all of them. If I had to summarize the book of James, it would be this. Real saving faith always works itself out in the real world. It is not confined to head knowledge. It works itself out in very practical ways. Faith works. James wants believers to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And this letter challenges Christians to live out their, their Christian faith in very practical ways. This letter comes across as one that's very authoritative. There's 59 imperatives or commands in just 108 verses. There are more commands per verse in this little letter than any other New Testament book. And James is really aiming his laser beam of truth at the crossroads between beliefs and behavior. He's getting in your kitchen and helping you understand what real faith looks like as it's lived out. James is writing this letter between A.D. 46 and A.D. 49, making the book of James or Galatians the first New Testament book, likely the first New Testament book ever written. So it gives us, that early date gives us insight into the life of the New Testament church at the very beginning. So if you haven't already gone there, if you would open your Bibles to James chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 just to set the context. I think the last time I, I preached in James, the one and only time I preached in James was last December. So you can be forgiven if you've forgotten where we, got, where we are at this point. But, uh, so James 1 verse 1, he says James, and he's identifying himself as the author of this letter, and he calls himself a bondservant of God. He's referring to himself as a slave. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is not James the Apostle. It's not him. He's been martyred by the time this book is is written. It really is the half-brother of Jesus. He came to to saving faith a little bit later in his life. It seems like it was not even during the earthly ministry of Jesus. But James doesn't call attention to the fact that, hey, I'm I'm Jesus' half-brother. No, he just calls himself a bondservant of God, a slave. A slave has no life of his own. They have no will of their own. They have no purpose of their own and no plans of their own. A slave's every thought and every breath and every effort are subject to the will of their master. And that's what James is saying here. He says he's a, he is a bondservant or a slave of God. He's completely surrendered and devoted to his master. And the way he refers to God, and then he uses three words to refer to his half-brother, he puts them on the same plane. God and Jesus are the same in the mind of James. He refers to him three ways. First, he calls him Lord. Jesus is his Lord. He is the master who calls the shots. He has absolute authority over every aspect of his life. James is saying, I have no authority as a slave. He calls him Jesus. This was the earthly name that he called his half-brother when they're playing in the backyard, I would imagine. This name, Jesus, means Yahweh is salvation. And lastly, he refers to him as Christ. 
And the Greek rendering of that Hebrew word refers to the, the, the way um, the Christos refers to uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic promises. And he's believing all of that. And, and for James, there's no clear distinction between God and Jesus. He puts them both on the same plane. And as James is writing, he, he says who he's writing to. He says he's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. These are Jewish believers who have been scattered like seed thrown up into the wind away from Jerusalem. He's writing to those believers who fled uh, most likely because of the persecution of the religious leaders that started in Acts 8 with the stoning of Stephen. And these are, are Jewish Christians who've really had their lives turned upside down. They've lost their homes, they've lost their jobs, they've lost families. These are not, these are not minor inconveniences. This is not a trial because they didn't find a prom dress. Or the grocery store was out of their favorite potato chips. These are serious trials for them. So James begins the letter by addressing the topic that's on all of their minds, which is trials. And he says in James 1 verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So James is writing to these persecuting, persecuted Christians and he says, he doesn't say if trials come, he says when trials come. And, and we all understand that and certainly these Jewish believers understood that as well. See, trying to sell Christianity on an, uh, an advertisement, a false advertisement that you can have your best life now wouldn't have flown in the first century. These people understood what it was like to make a commitment to Jesus Christ and lose everything. You and I need, need to expect that trials are part of the Christian life. It's not if they come, but it's when they come. Jesus himself said in John sixteen thirty three, in the world you have tribulation. That word tribulation means hardship. It means pressure, affliction, difficulty, adversity. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You and I can experience trials for a variety of reasons, and we understand that. Maybe you experience trials because of your, your own sin. Maybe there's a broken relationship. Or maybe you've mismanaged your finances and sinfully spent money you didn't have. Or maybe other sinful choices have caused physical suffering. Sin causes problems. Uh, the, uh, the author of Hebrews writes that God disciplines the children that he loves, that belong to him. So maybe we are in difficulties because of our own sin. It's also possible to experience trials because of the sin of others. Sin has ripple effects. It's never confined to just one area. Sin has consequences. And they extend well beyond the one that is sinning. And we see that in our society all the time. It's also possible to experience trials because God wants to put your faith on display. Who can forget Job 1.8? The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And God points out Job. There's no evidence that, that Job was ever told that, that he was pointed out by God. But Job's trials were a way of putting his faith on display for centuries. We still read of it. You may also experience trials because of your faith in Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. We all experience trials for a variety of reasons. No matter what your reason, James says that trials for the believer are inevitable. For those of us with genuine saving faith, however, they can be and should be an occasion for joy. And understand that James is not commanding how we should feel in a trial. They are painful. There are real feelings. There can be real physical pain. There can be mental anguish. He's not saying that that isn't real. He is commanding, however, 
how we should think in a trial. We should consider this trial an occasion for joy. And that's because the testing of our faith will refine and purify our faith. The trials we all experience are not in the way of God's plan. They're not a failure of God's plan. They're not a sign that God has forgotten you. Your trials are part of God's eternal plan. Your trials are a sign that God is committed to maturing your faith. And this is good news from James. So when we experience those trials, it's a sign that God is very committed to our holiness and to our growth and to our maturity. He says the testing of your faith produces endurance. And in the end, you'll be found perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are difficult, and we know this by personal experience. And as James writes, they come in various shapes and sizes. There's no one-size-fits-all trial. They all look different. Trials are hard. If they were easy, they wouldn't be called trials. They'd be called something else. So you read these first four verses and you go, okay, James, I believe you. Trials are an occasion for joy, but they're so hard. I believe that God's going to use those trials to mature my faith, but, but how do I move forward in the midst of this trial that I'm in right now? James, I need some help. I don't know how to be God's kind of believer when these types of circumstances are, are so oppressive and are, are weighing me down. Have you ever been there? I know I have. What do you need when you don't know what you need is wisdom. You need wisdom to know how to move forward. We all need wisdom. Ancient philosophers believed wisdom to be the chief of all virtues. One author wrote, Wisdom is wholly practical and concerned not with theories and ideas, but with actual conditions and the way to meet them. It teaches us how to live and enables us to meet every emergency rightly and successfully. See, wisdom is is more than just knowing the, and understanding the truth. Knowing is a, or wisdom is a right application of the truth. James is writing to Jewish believers who understand the value of wisdom. They are steeped in the Old Testament teachings. The Hebrew word for wisdom occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament wisdom literature most often occurring in Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes. These books are packed full of wisdom and they give instructions on moral values and emphasize proper conduct and practical applications for life. The Old Testament often views the wise and the foolish as complete opposites. The wise person knows the right things to do from God's word and he does them. This is the one who builds their house on a rock. The fool is the one who knows the right thing to do and does the wrong thing anyway. They'd just rather follow their own desires. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. For Hebrew believers steeped in Old Testament teachings, God was recognized as the source of all true wisdom. Proverbs 2, verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom, for Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So James has told us in verse 2, when trials come, they're an occasion for joy, because we know that God is producing in us an enduring faith. He's perfecting and maturing our faith. And when the trial ends, you and I will have that mature faith. It will be a faith that doesn't have holes in it. There's no shortcomings. That's all well and good to look forward to when my trial ends. But what do I do when I'm in the middle of it? And James addresses that in verses 5 through 8. So if you'd follow along in your Bibles as I read aloud. James 1 verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In these verses, James gives us two habits we need to practice while we're in the middle of a trial. James gives us two habits to help each of us gain wisdom to navigate in our trials and through our trials. And James has constructed these two habits in the Greek language as commands that you and I are to do immediately and to do repeatedly. They are, they are truly to become habits. These are not something you do once and move on. We are to put them into practice immediately and repeatedly. If trials are a part of life for the Christian, we need to hear what James has to say about trials this morning. God intends for trials to be an occasion for joy. And verses 5 through 8 really represent our lifeline if you're in the middle of trials. These words are written by the half-brother of Jesus, and we need this in our lives today. If you're taking notes with me, here's the the big idea to help frame your note-taking, if you will. In James 1, verses 5 to 8, James is giving to us Two habits to gain the wisdom we need to honor God in the midst of a trial. Let me repeat that. In James 1, 5 to 8, James is giving to us two habits to gain the wisdom we need to honor God in the midst of a trial. And the first habit you need to see is this. Number one, make it your habit to ask God for wisdom. If you look at the end of verse 4, it says, James writes, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then immediately in verse 5, he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Is this a, a contradiction? James, you said, I'm, I won't be lacking anything. And then you immediately says, but if any of you do lack, let him ask of God. What you need to know about this is th- that little word Well, two things, really. First, verse 4 is looking forward to when the trial is done. When you you have ended the trial, you you won't lack anything to get through it because it will be over. You'll be done. But in James, verse 5, he's addressing those of us who are still in the trial. This is that period of testing where endurance has not yet completed its perfect work of refining and purifying and maturing the believer. There's still work to be done in our lives, and we're not, we're not through with it yet. If you were to look at that word if in English, if kind of conveys an idea of it might be true, it might not be. You know, if any of you lacks wisdom, um, I mean, we would interpret that as there might be some who lack wisdom and there might be some who, who don't lack wisdom. But that isn't the way it's written in Greek. This is actually constructed in such a way that every first century reader would see this as true. We all have a need of wisdom. And James is saying that all of you lack wisdom to endure your trial, to make it through your trial. The emphasis here is on the reality that every one of us lacks. That's the way you should read this. If any of you lacks wisdom, and you all do, you need to ask God. The wisdom we lack in this context is not general wisdom. It's not the wisdom to make great investments. It's not the wisdom we need to fix our computer or fix our car. That's not what James has in mind here. This is the wisdom we need to endure our trial in a God-honoring way. It's that specific wisdom that he's talking about. It's the wisdom we need to consider it joy when we encounter trials, when we're in the midst of trials. This wisdom is the knowledge and ability that we need to skillfully apply God's word to our situation while navigating hard times. This is the wisdom to enable you to live out God's word in a way that that Christ would have you live while you're in that trial. James says, let him ask of God. And by the way, James isn't giving permission here. It's a good idea if you go to God. He's not letting us. This is really a command. What this really says is, if any of you lack wisdom and you all lack it, you must ask the giving God. That's what he says here. James is not granting us permission. He's actually saying you must make it your habit to ask God and keep on asking him. This isn't a suggestion. 
It's a command that we are to do over and over again while we're in the middle of our trials. It's to be our habit to ask God for wisdom. Saints, when we're in a trial, no amount of cleverness or ingenuity on our part will help us navigate trials in a way that honors the Lord. We need to go and we need to ask God for the wisdom we need. You realize that if you're in a trial and you don't ask God for wisdom, you're in sin. That's what this verse says. If we think we can just do it on our own steam, we're in sin. We are violating Scripture. We're doing something He told us not to do. You need to ask God. You don't have the wisdom to get through this trial. You need to ask God. And note that God gives this wisdom to all. God doesn't just give it to elders who pray and ask God for wisdom. This verse isn't limited to deacons. God gives to all who ask of God. Notice that James describes God's giving in two ways. Notice he says he gives to all generously. This has the idea of singleness of heart. God is great, he, a gracious and liberal giver. God gives without ulterior motives. He's not giving so that he might get something back in return. He wants to give us this. God gives to all wholeheartedly because he is the giving God. It's in his nature to give without hesitation and without delay. Notice also that God, not only does he give generously, but he also gives without reproach. I don't know about you, I, I don't use that word very often, so I'm going to define it for you. It's to find fault in a way that demeans the other, mocks, or heaps insults as a way of shaming. And this is a time of confession for me. It's unfortunate as I look for an illustration uh, of what reproach looks like. I have to use my own life. And I'm going to imagine that there could be parents who might be able to put themselves in the same boat. But imagine for a moment that you, ha- that you are a parent and you have kids. And they're asking, let's say, a math question for about the 8,000th time. And they come to you looking for, not that that would ever occur in my home, but like 4,000 at best. But imagine them coming to you, and as they ask, Dad, can you help me with this? I answer something like this. Didn't you ask me that question last week? Have you already forgotten what I told you yesterday? I can't believe you still don't know how to do these. Uh, I come from a long line of of family members who use reproach when it comes to teaching math. My dad used to say, I can't believe you don't know how to do this. This is as easy as falling out of a tree. Um, So you'll have to use your own imagination to come up with your own reproach examples. But I've got good news. God isn't like that. God doesn't, when we come to him and ask for wisdom, God isn't giving us reproach. There's no sting in it. There's no rebuke as part of it. He is happy that you're obeying Scripture and you're coming to Him to ask. He wants us to depend upon Him. God gives that wisdom without the sting. God provides the ability to apply His Word in our trial without the insults. That's not going to happen. If you think you're too embarrassed to go to God again, that's your own thinking. That's not what Scripture says. Notice the end of verse 5. It says, and it will be given to him. This is the wisdom to skillfully apply God's word in the midst of, of a trial. It will be given to the one who asks. God does not promise total clarity on every decision in every trial. That's not, that's not what James says here. James does say that, that God promises the wisdom to discern how we would how he would have us respond while we're in the midst of the trial. This sounds so much like Jesus, the half-brother of James. Listen as I read the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, starting in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Our Heavenly Father will answer our prayers and give us the wisdom we need after we ask for it. How does God answer the prayer for wisdom to the one who asks? Is it audible voices? Is it miraculous signs? Is it inner peace? Is it a a series of really crazy circumstances that seem to pile on top of each other? No. That's not how God answers our prayer for wisdom. In 2 Peter, Peter writes that this contains everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. These precious promises are where we seek wisdom. Maybe you've memorized 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I've got to imagine for a moment that one of the good works that he is equipping us for is to walk through a trial in a way that is pleasing in his sight. It might be to apply God's word to the circumstances of our life in such a way that it it testifies of our belief in God and glorifies God. When you and I are in the midst of a trial, we should primarily be looking at scripture to find the wisdom we need. And if God's word doesn't directly address your trial, you need to look for principles in Scripture that address your trial. And by the way, just because you're praying for wisdom and you get some crazy thought into your mind, that does not automatically mean it's for God. Well, I prayed and and now I got this idea on my mind. It's only those things that align with Scripture. The number of times I have heard people say, well, I know God just wants me to be happy, so I'm going to leave my wife. I know God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to buy this car I can't afford. I know God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to move to another state, whatever it is. It's only those things that align with Scripture. Don't convince yourself that every stray thought or random connection of brain cells is God speaking wisdom to you. There's a second way that God answers our prayer for wisdom, not only through his word, but secondly, I would say that God answers our prayer for wisdom through the counsel of others who know God's word. Proverbs 12, 15, the the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 19, 20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. This is so good of God. As you and I make it our habit to ask God for wisdom, He gives us the wisdom we need. He gives us insight into His Word. He gives us the ability to to mine out that wisdom as we search the Scriptures. God's wisdom to endure trials with joy, to navigate trials in a God-honoring way, can be ours simply by asking for it. And God has ordained that this wisdom will be granted after we ask for it, not before. You and I need to make it our habit to ask God for wisdom. There's a second habit that you and I need to practice if we want to have wisdom in the midst of our trials. So not only do we need to make it our habit to ask God for wisdom, but secondly, you need to make it your habit to trust God without doubt. This is point two. You need to make it your habit to trust God without doubt. Notice verse five again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all. Well, I don't know about you, but there have been times where I've been in the midst of a trial and I don't feel like I'm, I'm able to grasp the wisdom of what I need to do next. I don't feel like I'm, I'm all the way there. I can't understand what I should do. I'm, I'm clouded as to my decision-making process as I'm in the midst of that trial. But James is saying here that, that God will not hesitate to grant wisdom to all those who ask. 
But that hasn't always been my experience, and, and maybe you've been there. You've been calling out to God for wisdom, and you're feeling like it's seeds on glass. I'm, I'm not breaking through. So what's going on here? Well, I think there are, are, are two conditions that need to be met for God to give wisdom. The first condition I think many of us are probably going to meet, but some maybe not, is you need to be a Christian. That's the first condition. You need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Remember, James is writing this to the brethren. This is not to everybody. It's to those who have turned from their sin and submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. James is not saying that that God grants wisdom to every person who prays to him and especially those who are, are still on the sidelines, to those who refuse to submit to Christ as Lord, if you are stopping just short of saving faith, if you are stopping just short of, of committing yourself fully to Christ, don't think that God's going to answer that prayer for wisdom. It may be that you need to go through these dark times in your life to open your eyes to the, your need of salvation before God grants wisdom. So you need to be a a Christian. You need to be a follower of Christ. But there's a second condition. Notice verse 6. James writes this. He writes, but. And this is an important conjunction. And it indicates that James is adding a contrast to what he just said. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. James has written this as a command to be obeyed. And again, not a suggestion, not a one-and-done deal. It's a habit. You must ask in faith, and you must keep on asking in faith repeatedly. James is contrasting here how to ask and how not to ask. God requires that we ask him in the right way. When we ask, we must ask in faith. If you would take your Bibles and turn over to the left about two pages to Hebrews chapter 11. It's two pages in my Bible. It might be more in yours. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse 1. The author of Hebrews defines for us faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. I think in our world, people sometimes define faith as you believe something even though it's not really true. You believe something even though there's no evidence that this could possibly work out. That's blind faith and that's stupidity. That's not what the author of Hebrews says here. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. There are some promises in here that we have not yet seen. There are many things that have already been fulfilled as true. When we have faith, As believers, it is not a blind faith. It's not an ignorant faith. It is a faith based upon God's word and the veracity of God's word. Look with me down in verse 6, Hebrews 11, verse 6. I want you to notice one other thing here. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Please note it does not say difficult to please him. And without faith, it is really hard to please him. It's not easy. It's not really hard. It's not sometimes we can please him. It says impossible to please him. And as Brian always says, you know what that word impossible means? It means impossible. You can't do it without faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So there's some some boundaries on what faith is. Now go back to James, but go past James 1 and go to James chapter 2. I told you in the, the beginning of this that, that James is writing this that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers. He, is, he has written this book to, to show that faith does work. There are works that go along with faith. So James chapter 2 where did I have this? So to ask, where am I at here? All right. Sorry about that. I got confused. I've got so much writing on my notes. So to ask in faith is to fully trust that God is able to answer that prayer, and God will answer the prayer for wisdom. So 
So what I need you to understand is faith is more than an agreement with a set of facts. And now we're in James 2, sorry, verse 18. Look with me at verse 18 in James 2. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, and the demons also believe and shudder. And what James is saying here is works are not the reason that you are saved. You are not saved based upon your works, but works will always be the evidence of genuine saving faith. Your beliefs, even correct ones, notice verse 19, he's talking about demons. Demons have their theology correct, They know some things that are true. They affirm them to be true. Demons believe correctly, but they hate God's word, and they show it by not submitting to it, not obeying it. And here's James's point. A person with saving faith will always show it by their work. So when you ask God in faith, so when you ask God in faith, it's to fully trust that God is able to answer And God will answer that prayer for wisdom. And it includes a commitment to obey what God's, that wisdom that you're going to receive. To ask in faith is to fully trust God to answer our prayer in a way that is loving and kind and best for God's glory and our good. And with a resolve to obeying it. To ask in faith is to fully trust God without any doubting and committing ourselves to obeying it no matter what the cost and no matter what the consequence. I believe James is connecting faith with works right here. It's not just believing some true things about God as you ask in prayer. And I think this is where a lot of Christians go off the tracks with their prayers. And I'm going to just admit there are times when I go off the tracks with my own prayer life. I don't even fully believe that it's going to happen. I think we ask and simultaneously we're doubting. That word doubting is to be at odds with oneself. It's to hesitate or waver. Doubting pictures the idea of a divided mind, vacillating back and forth between two opinions. And it can be easy to express doubt even when we pray. God, I want to honor you in this trial, but man, do I really want this trial to end. God, I want to go through this trial with joy, but I'd really, really, really like this trial to be over. James says God will not hesitate to give wisdom to those Christians who ask in faith without doubting, and they're resolved to honor God in the midst of their trial, to obey God's wisdom. I think James wants to make doubly sure that we understand this truth, so he gives us an illustration in the rest of verse 6. Notice what he says. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And the picture of the doubter is like the swell of the sea. And, and if you uh, are the recipient of this letter in the first century, you no doubt are, are familiar with the Mediterranean Sea. You're familiar with the, the Sea of Galilee. When we're in Mark 4, um, he Mark chapter 4, Brian taught a few weeks ago about Jesus being in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and he's got the apostles with him and and the winds came and the waves were crashing over the boat. They thought they were going to die. It's that kind of turbulence. The Mediterranean Sea no doubt had those same types of things. Years ago, uh, Gina and uh, Hannah and Adam and I took a, a cruise from Seattle up to Alaska and those are really, really big boats. And uh, day one, we are at sea, and we, have a, we had a, a, a fairly nice cabin, and I could sit on my bed, and I don't know how big this boat is. I'm guessing it's close to 1,000 feet, but I could sit on the edge of my bed and look out my slider, if you will, out at the ocean. And what I saw was full waves, full sky, Full waves, full sky. And it lasted that way the entire day. Adam and I did an experiment. Turns out you cannot walk down the hallway without hitting a wall. And uh, it was really rough. People are sick. But I'll tell you, we went out on the, I don't know whether the, is it the bow? Whatever the front of the boat is. Is it the bow? 
the bow. I'm not a Navy guy. Um, went on the front of the boat, and we were mesmerized by these enormous waves that are just coming up and going down. And it didn't matter which way you looked. It, they didn't seem to be going necessarily with the wind or anything else. It was enormous wave, huge trough, just the whole day. And uh, that's the picture of the doubter that James wants us to have. When we ask God for the wisdom to endure trials with joy, the doubter vacillates just like the sea between rising faith one minute and doubt the next minute and despair and uncertainty. The doubting Christian alternates between belief and unbelief and, and it depends on which way the wind is blowing. That's what God doesn't want us to do. We need to ask without doubting. How does God answer the one who wavers between belief and unbelief? How does God respond to one who can't decide between fully trusting in God's wisdom or committing to their own way? The answer is in verse 7. James 1, verse 7, for that man. And, and you can almost hear the, the disdain and the accusations as he says that. For that man, that doubter, ought not to expect. And that's actually another command here. It's a present imperative. Don't even think about expecting that he will receive anything from the Lord. Listen, if you're going to ask God for wisdom and simultaneously hesitate between your opinion. Hesitate between your belief and unbelief, doubt and, and trust. Do not expect that God is going to answer that prayer for wisdom no matter how many times you pray it. James is saying, if you doubt, it's your fault that you don't receive the wisdom that you need. I know we've all heard Brian say this maybe a hundred times. God does not cater to unbelief. James is saying it right here. God does not cater to unbelief. And James further expands his explanation of, of that man, the doubter. Look at verse 8. Being a double-minded man. Double-minded could be translated literally as two-souled or, or double-souled. This word is only found two places in the New Testament. It's here in James chapter 4, verse 8. Most commentators believe that James actually constructed this word to have a very graphic picture for those first century Jews. It's not found anywhere else in Greek literature prior to it showing up here in the first century. Listen to the way one commentator, D. Edmund Hebert, described this word double-minded. The vivid expression, a man two-souled, denotes the doubter's divided attitude. He acts as though two distinct souls or personalities are in his body, in perpetual conflict with each other. The one is turned Godward, while the other is turned toward the world. The one believes God, but the other disbelieves. He is a walking civil war in which trust and distrust of God wage a continual battle against each other. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? I love that book. There's a, a character in Pilgrim's Progress who goes by the, way, by the name of Mr. Facing Both Ways. He's a man who keeps one foot in the church because he wants to be known as a Christian, but he also keeps one foot in the world because he really doesn't want to fully commit all the way to Christ. He wants the benefits of Christianity. He wants to be able to call on God in prayer, but he still wants things his own way. He's unwilling to fully follow Christ's lordship. The double-minded doubter asks God for help, but before he's even said amen, he already knows in his heart, this is never going to work. And he shows himself to be a lot like Mr. Two, Mr. Facing Both Ways. I wonder how many of you have, have prayed something similar and maybe compared yourself a little bit to Mr. Facing Both Ways. If we want God's wisdom but we also want out of the trial or we want to put God's solu our solution into God's mind, that's not fully asking God in faith. Scripture has numerous examples of warnings against being double-minded or wavering that James warns against here. Joshua called on the Israelites in Joshua 24 to stop wavering. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah called out the Israelites on Mount Carmel, saying, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Jesus warned about the wavering loyalties in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. James isn't done doing a pile-on on this doubter, that man. Notice also that he's unstable. He's wobbling. He's wavering. He's restless, unsettled, disorderly. And this type of instability isn't just limited to his prayer life. James says this instability spills out in all his ways. And this is a a Hebrew idiom for your behavior in the way you live your life. Listen, a wobbly commitment to trusting God is never confined only to prayer. It will always manifest itself in the other aspects of your life. James says all. It's not a few. It's not many. It's every area of your life. And he says all his ways. Ways is plural, not singular. Doubting is a big deal because it spills out into every area of your life. Mike was talking about holiness this morning in Sunday school. He was talking about, you know, we tend to think of sin as, as things that are like crimes. You know, murder, that's a sin, clearly. Lying, we'll put that in the sin category, of course. But there are other things that maybe aren't quite as extreme, like doubt. I tend to think of doubt as a, a minor sin. Uh, and that was prior to studying this. Listen to the words of John MacArthur from his book, Worship the ultimate priority. For some reason, we think of doubt and worry as small sins. But when a Christian displays unbelief or an inability to cope with life, like what might happen in a trial, like when you're going through difficulties, that person is saying to the world, My God cannot be trusted. And that kind of disrespect makes one guilty of a fundamental error, the heinous sin of dishonoring God, and that is no small sin. If you want the wisdom to endure your trial in a God-honoring way, James says you must make it your habit to ask God for wisdom and trust God without doubting. If you were in San Francisco or Phoenix, It's possible for you to want to take a taxi somewhere. And those two cities currently offer driverless taxis. So you can get in these taxis and you somehow communicate with somebody who isn't there that you need to go somewhere. And and that car will drive in and around traffic automatically using artificial intelligence. Amazon's Alexa uses some form of artificial intelligence. There's modern driver's assist technology that uses various forms of artificial intelligence, and you may already use it. My mom has a relatively new Honda CRV, and whenever I'm driving that, I'll be in it about 10 minutes, and a little coffee cup comes in, and it says, You may think about, you know, getting some coffee, and I'll ignore that. And about 10 minutes later, it'll come up again, and it'll say, You know, dude, you really need to get some coffee. Something bad is going to happen. It's not quite that bad, but it is that, that obnoxious. I don't know what it's saying. I think I'm an excellent driver. <laughs> Artificial intelligence works by taking in all of this input, massive amounts of data, and it learns patterns and, and relationships to make better decisions about the future. And you can expect that artificial intelligence is going to impact many, many areas of our life. I asked one of the current leaders in artificial intelligence. It's, it's a website called ChatGPT or ChatAI, and maybe you've heard of it before. I asked uh, that website, hey, what's the best way to obtain wisdom to navigate a trial? Difficult circumstances. 
And this is cutting edge by every stretch of the imagination. It's an application of artificial intelligence. It's harnessed all the wisdom of the best books. It's mapped the entire internet. It has all the best academic studies. It has the opinions of all the best scholars, all the thought leaders the world has to offer. And then it puts machine learning and these advanced algorithms and it gonculates out something that, that is an answer. And I've heard great things about it. So I thought, you know what? Let's just test it out. Chat GPT, how can I obtain wisdom to endure trials? Five ways. One, pursue self-reflection. Take time to understand your values, beliefs, and strengths. I'm trying not to be sarcastic, but there may... Number two, seek knowledge. Read books and articles and resources to provide insight. Number three, learn from difficult circumstances. Embrace the difficult circumstances as an opportunity for growth. Number four, seek guidance. Don't be afraid to reach out to mentors or friends. And number five, practice mindfulness. Try to be fully present in the moment and not judgmentally observe your thoughts and emotions. That's the best the world has to offer. The best answers, all the technology, and it comes up with that. We are 2,000 years removed from when James wrote James chapter 1. And it has more wisdom in its pinky than all of the best technology in the world has to offer because they don't go to God. They don't consider that God is the source of wisdom. The wisdom we need to honor God in the midst of our trials is ours for the asking if we just ask God in faith. This is the type of prayer our giving God will not hesitate to answer. Ask God for wisdom. Trust God without doubting. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful that you are the source of all true wisdom. And you have not left us wanting as we go through the trials of life. And not only are we not left wanting, you have promised in your word to make us complete and mature and refine our faith as we go through these trials. And so, Lord, we ask on, your, on uh, the behalf of all of us here, help us to ask you in faith. Help us to trust you in faith. Lord, may you be pleased as we go through life showing that we are followers of Jesus Christ and you are a God who can be trusted. In Christ's name, amen.